And we are back on the lift. We have got a doozy of a show for you today. Let me start with a couple of uh, follow-ups from the show that Mike and I did on 90 years of tips and hacks um, in skiing. So one, um, one person texted us at, oh, by the way, this is the number. You can either call or text 253-260-4577. And what she suggested was on those foggy days when you can't tell um, what the snow's looking like right in front of you, that you scooch on over close to a tree line. Not so close that you might get you know consumed or just eaten up by a tree well, but enough that the, the darkness of the tree creates a contrast to the snow. Awesome tip. She didn't leave a name. I think her name was Ma'am, but I'm not positive. Um, another one came from one of our friends in Boise, Idaho. And his tip was um, during COVID, some of us have suffered frozen goggles. And Idaho's a little more, um, uh, Idaho gets it when it gets real cold, like below zero kind of cold. Um, so some of you in the, the coastal ranges may not have that experience very often, but when your goggles, so, so during COVID, our um, face are masked and the condensation from our mouths and noses goes into our goggles. And many of us have had fogging issues this year that we didn't know we had, even if you have the best goggles in the world. What he cautioned us is not to try and wipe off the ice that might form a very thin layer of, of ice with um, with your gloves, but to warm it first just by holding your, your gloves over the top of it. Because what happens is if you try and wipe it with your gloves, you're going to scratch them up. So two awesome tips. There were a few others, but those stand out. And I'm, I'm just going to prime you real quick here. Rich Marriott is a veteran meteorologist in the Seattle area. He works for King 5 News. He does their morning show. He corresponds with Mike and I at 3 in the morning, probably and he, when he's uh, pulling into work. Anyhow, he generously gave us a significant chunk of time for today's show. Rich is, in my mind, and probably anyone else's mind, one of the foremost experts on avalanches. And that goes back to his days in the early days of creating standards for forecasting avalanches, standards for analyzing avalanches, and the warning systems and that, that we're familiar with today. Um, there has never been a time when more people have been going into the, the side country and the back country. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, when people can't get reservations at resorts or can't, you know, find a place to park because of the COVID situation. Rich is um, really gonna impress you with a lot of just meaningful information that, that, um, that you can take away with you, especially right now when there's a huge snowpack. In our state, there's 140% of its normal, um, of a normal snowpack. So uh, it's dangerous times out there if you don't know what you're doing and if you don't know what to look for. And uh, can't wait to share our time with Rich with you. So, you know, here we go. Hop on that lift and feel like you're sitting next to Rich and enjoy the show. 
Live from Greenwater Studios, this is On The Lift Podcast, your weekly show that is ultimately about skiing. This is the show that ducks the rope, earns some turns, dances in ski boots, poaches hot tubs, closes the bar, and still makes it on the first chair. Here's your hosts, two dudes who rip the pow, shred the gnar, and tell the tales, Lance Hester and Michael Gore. And we are on the lift. How are you doing today, Lance? I'm doing great. I'm excited about today. We've got a little sun and uh, I can see Mount Rainier this morning. Yep. And speaking of sun, we also are joined by Rich Marriott from King 5. And many of you have grown up watching uh, Rich do the weather in the Seattle area. <laughs> and so what uh, you may not know is that he's quite a skier. And uh, we're going to talk about Weather, skiing, avalanches, all kinds of stuff today. So, Rich, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's, it's great to be here. It's, uh, as you said, the sun's out today, which is kind of nice. I was thinking just today that, you know, we had, what, a foot of snow in Seattle a week, two weeks ago, and my daffodils are blooming now. And, of course, <laughs> that makes me think of spring skiing. Yeah. <laughs> which is my favorite, by the way. But it's, you know what? <laughs> I have to say that as the years have passed, I mean, I more and more like that warmer part of the ski season. It's just mm -hmm. the natural fact yeah. of aging, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you have had a considerable history in sort of the other, um, well, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's relevant in the spring as well, but um, the dead of winter, big snow dumps. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell us or tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background and uh, uh, take it from there. Well, I guess um, I grew up in Southern California, which is amazing. I didn't actually start skiing until I was 22. Okay. Because um, I married a lady from Seattle, and she asked me, well, wouldn't you, you know, I don't want to give up skiing. Would you mind learning how to ski? And she actually wrote it in a letter to me because we were kind of long distance commuting. She <laughs> Always good to get that in writing. <laughs> well, it was good because uh, like five years later, I was doing it for a living. So, <laughs> I think she came to regret that letter. So I had a, I had a frame to put on the wall, <laughs> but uh, so I, I was at the time I was at UCLA uh, doing grad work in upper atmosphere and uh, actually climate change, believe it or not, and uh, also in space physics. And I was gearing up. This was like early '70s, and I was gearing up. I, my goal was to get into the space program. But what I was working on basically with the end of the moon program, there were no jobs and I was working on my PhD and I just, I couldn't do it anymore because I was commuting to the Mammoth and to the Sierras every weekend. And a friend of mine was on the faculty at UW and he said, we were actually skiing it up until over Christmas break. And he, I was saying, but I'm really, and I think I'm just gonna take my master's and come up here and find a junior college teaching position. Hey, you should, there's a guy at the university doing, you know, avalanche and mountain weather research. You should talk to him. It was Ed LaChapelle who's, like the father of avalanche mm -hmm. science and technology in the United States. And so I talked to Ed and he said, well, I got a research program next year. Why don't you apply? And I did. And remarkably, they accepted me. And I left enemies at UCLA, my professor there for leaving before I finished my degree. But what could I do? Seriously. And so I came up here and I spent three years doing research at the University of Washington, uh, working with Mark Moore, the person we ended up founding the Avalanche Center together. And that was geared towards uh, researching, improving mountain weather forecasts and developing a method of doing avalanche forecasting from a central location. It was okay. called avalanche, Central Avalanche Hazard Forecasting, in fact, is the name of the project. And uh, so we did that and then they liked it so much between DOT and Park Service 
and not skier us so much back in the 70s because they didn't like us because we got we cut down on some of their customers mm -hmm. um <laughs> they made it permanent so it became uh, a uh, it was permanently funded starting in 1978 and though we had some nip and tuck times in the past not so much anymore it's just really taken off in all these years so that was kind of and i did that for 15 years before i got drafted by some of you may remember harry wappler yeah, yeah. he was on a rival Doppler. station but a really good friend of mine <laughs> and uh he, uh, he said, Jeff, do you know have an opening? You really ought to try this. And I'd never thought about it. And I went over to a quick audition. And they said, well, we might use you for summer filling, which is like, don't let the door hit you as you leave. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, but then there was an opening at King and I, they gave me an audition tape and Harry knew the assistant news director and they interviewed me. And for reasons I still can't believe looking at my initial audition tapes, they hired me. And so I've been doing that for 33 plus years now. Wow. So, all the same place. It's all in the same place. Yeah. It's no only place it would take me. So yeah. Well, and I don't then, I don't mean to sidetrack things, but have you have you gone back and looked at those original audition tapes lately? <laughs> uh yeah. Yeah, seriously. That's why I say I don't understand why they hired me because I was horrid. I was absolutely <laughs> horrid, except except that I, I I worked very cheaply at that point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that might have been I was doing weekend nights, so they didn't really care that much. Yeah. So um yeah, that's kind of and then I actually I did both for three years. And, and actually during that same, actually I should take a step back. So when I was working for the university and then I was working for the forest service, it was a seasonal job. And so Ed LaChapelle had started the uh, Blue Glacier Research Project in, uh, oh, back during 57, 58. So the Blue Glacier Research, Blue Glacier Research Station up on uh, Mount Olympus in the Olympics. Mm. Um, he, he basically handed it over to me and I was a station manager up there for 10 summers. And so, I spent my summers with a 1200 foot snow slope outside my front door all summer long, which is oh, wow. awesome. So, in fact, my older <laughs> nice son, when office. he was uh, six weeks old, we put him on a helicopter and spent the first summer of his life in a front pack with me telemarking around the glacier and jumping over crevasses. So, <laughs> the minute the fact that my father in law at the time did not like me. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, so that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, your, your son. What an interesting start to life. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Well, great. Well, you know, um, uh, weather forecasting has got to be stressful. It's got to be, uh, especially around here, um, it's got to uh, come. I, I'm sure part of the package is that you probably, you know, feel some sense of responsibility for other people's you know safety and it sounds like that your your avalanche research probably has um resulted in some standardization for how avalanches are you know the the terminology in avalanche forecasting and that sort of thing um i don't know a lot about it i don't do backcountry skiing at least yet and um I see your guys, uh, you know, the, the different meteorologist reports and the warnings and so forth. Is that something you could walk our listeners through? Well, it's uh, well, there's two parts to it. I mean, okay. one is to do in terms of doing avalanche forecasting. This is pretty much kind of a methodology that we worked out that Mark and I worked out. Uh, and I should also throw Bud Rainier, who was our uh, consultant while we started this out. because He was, he was a former uh, uh, forecaster of the National Weather Service office here in Seattle. And so he was the ticket to let these two very furry hippie guys into the weather service office, which was very <laughs> conventional at that point. And we were sure we, we must be terrorists of some sort at that point. So he kind of told them we were okay. Um, we basically worked out the two, two prongs of that research was 
to improve mountain weather forecast in more deep to be able to do it in more detail, obviously, because as we all know, it varies, you know, every 50 feet oh, <laughs> in the, in the, yeah. everywhere. And in the Cascades and Olympics, it's even worse. So part of our charge was to figure out a better way of doing that. And then the second part of that was to develop a methodology of regularly measuring the snowpack. So with the, measuring the snowpack, you know what the current hazard is, but in order to forecast the hazard, you have to have a weather forecast on how the snowpack is going to evolve and how conditions that might make it more stable or less stable come to pass. So you got to have the decent weather forecast to be able to truly avalanche forecast. And that's kind of what we worked out. So needless to say, in all these years and in, in 45 years, mercifully, it's gotten a lot better on both ends, both in the avalanche forecasting and the weather forecasting part. Yeah. But in, in terms of the, the weather forecasting part, though the, the general setup is still the same. What we have now that we didn't have then, a lot of it was by seat of the pants and in terms of being able to get very detailed because some of the, the best computer models we have back in the mid seventies, the topography of the state of Washington consisted of a plane that started at the coast and rose to 3000 feet in Spokane. Not a lot of detail, no cascades, no sure. Olympics. <laughs> and so That's a lot of them just kind of, you, you know, you wetted your finger and stuck it up in the wind there and <laughs> you knew which way the wind was blowing from that. <laughs> so we worked on that. And part of that was to, we realized after our first winter that we needed to have more than twice daily observations from a couple of places in the mountains to be able to understand what was going on. And so we started uh, after our first season, 75, 76, we actually, Mark and I installed our first remote weather station up at Stevens Pass above the old faithful slide pass. Uh, which is just a couple miles to the east of the ski area off of Chair 5 mm -hmm. up there. And that was the start of the whole uh, network that uh, the Northwest Avalanche Center has now. Okay. And it was it was quite an undertaking. So we had to, it was a cheap project and Mark and I were the laborer. And so we had to lay two miles of six pair communication cable and power from the top of Chair 5. Oh my so gosh. We had a, wow. We had a fun fall. <laughs> Actually, we did have a fun fall. The weather was pretty good and the huckleberries came out and the days were long, but good. Yeah. Um, so we, after that, we started actually getting data into the office on a more regular basis. And now I'm sure you guys look at the, the data from those, those stations mm -hmm. in the mountains because they yeah. tell you what's going on and where, which is really, really awesome. So now we've got a much better network now. We've also got much better computer models. Uh, talking about the the model before then we were talking about it's that plane from the coast to Spokane. Now, you know, we're down to the models like the University of Washington, their wharf model, which is down to, you know, you see every little thing that goes on. Okay. Some that don't, which is judging those two as part of the, as part of the experience. Um, so now you've got really good computer models. And the thing that we have now with the Avalanche Center is, is they have observers everywhere actually taking on a regular basis, not to mention the public generally sending in observations telling you exactly what the state of the snowpack is. Okay. So now you can put all this together and come at it. it it's, I am really impressed whenever I go into the, the website there and I'm looking down through the list of, you know, for Stevens Pass, the Snoqualmie Pass and the west side of the Cascade, South Cascades. And it is mm -hmm. just amazing now that you've got all this information put together. So people have, before they go out in the snowpack, and this is the thing, it's just tough for, for people who just recreate occasionally, is, you know, in order to know what's going on in the snowpack, you kind of have to live the snowpack through the winter. Uh -huh. And and now you can kind of do that because you can read mm -hmm. the summary and see what's been going on. And then you can go out and if you have a little bit of training, you can start looking at the snowpack and judging if what you read in the, the forecast applies to where you are. Okay. And, okay. And 
And the thing about avalanches, I would say more than anything else is the fact that um, even more than weather is that just small variations across the slope, as you guys are probably well aware, make a huge difference. And, you know, you can have six people ski a slope, five of them get down fine. One of them happens to hit that spot, which is yeah. just right. And it sits off the avalanche. Yeah. Right. Wow. Your ability to, to judge whether or not slope that has that potential is, is much improved if you know what's underneath the top of the snow before you head out. Sure. Yeah. So, so Rich, then when we're skiing in bounds in, in a resort, um, I think my, at least for myself, I kind of have treated avalanches like surfers treat sharks. You, you just don't think about them. That's right. Somebody else, somebody else will deal with it. Yeah. Exactly. Or, somebody, or the shark will get somebody else. Right. right. Exactly. Or it's like, you know, okay, I have a limited amount of control and, and, you know, you just kind of try to take that out of your mind, so to speak. We have this false, we have a sense of security when we're in bounds at a resort in kind of, in your opinion, is that what are, should we be kind of aware, even though there's avalanche control in, in place, are there certain aspects or certain slopes that, that you should avoid in your average resort or, or that's a, it's a, that's a really good question. Yeah. Overall, you should feel secure within a, a okay. ski area, but I mean, you have to judge, as you said, where you are, if you're on a groomed slope, chances are you're in great shape. Mm -hmm. They, those are, you know, they take down the slides above them. If you're off skiing untracked inbound, say at a place like Crystal Mountain or Stevens yeah. Pass, and especially we have steeps where, you know, it only takes a small avalanche. All you have to do is get, you know, have a, a small avalanche and have a gully. It's a terrain yeah. uh, hazard. Sure. And you suddenly have a huge amount of snow on top of you and you can't get out. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say when you're skiing like that, your, your best bet is to always ski. Don't ski alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's the first thing. And then watch each other because yeah. your chances of surviving anything is a lot better if you're not both caught. And so, mm -hmm. and Sometimes it's hard when the snow is really good to take turns because you're both want to track it and however sure. people in your group. But when you're anywhere where you have any significant amount of new snow, I think that's really important in terms of safety. And add on top of that here in the Pacific Northwest, because we get so much snow, mm -hmm. is you know, is snow suffocation, which is a real yeah. deep snow suffocation, which is a real problem around here. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, when you get like three feet of new snow and it's drifted in places. And I don't know if you've ever experienced it where you fall and you can't because the position no you're in and way your yeah. skis are jammed or your right. snowboard is under there. You just can't without somebody's help. You mm -hmm. are out of luck. And right. so again, yeah, you want to just, you know, yeah. ski as a team and watch each other and have have a great day. It isn't slow you up that much. You're still getting a lot of vertical. But uh, then you get to go home at the end of the day and ski another day. That was <laughs> That's the, the thing, key to the you program. know, Mark and I being young and crazy in those days, and in many ways it was much crazier than now. We were stupider than most people are now. Um, we just do some stupid things. And we finally decided as we got older, and I think it was maybe after we had kids, <laughs> we, we, just, we were standing at the top of the slope one day and we said, you know, no slope is good enough to die for. No. Yeah. And yeah, so absolutely. if you got any concerns about it, don't yeah. do it. Turn yeah. around and you know, save yeah. it for another day. There'll be another yeah, powder comes close, but yeah, not, not yeah, what we're dying for, for sure. <laughs> no, um, is there any all. truth to the fact that, you know, kind of, you hear the term maritime snowpack here in the Northwest, right? And there's sort of a sense that maybe these coastal ranges tend to hold snow better than like you'd see in the Rockies. Um, but it, it also seems like we have such varied and diverse weather here. It'll warm up. Like, you know, we just got, you know, feet and feet of snow and then it warms up and, and creates so 
I'm not sure exactly what my question here, but is there kind of, is it a, is, is there a degree of safety having more of a maritime snowpack or is that oversimplifying? N not, no, not here? really. I, okay. I don't think so. It's, uh, you also have to think about the fact that uh, our snowpack has, has more oomph to it when it moves. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so realistically, so a, a snow more, slab doesn't yeah. really much difference. Once the, the whole okay. turbine starts going on, they're all pretty nasty. Is that yeah. is that what we refer to as cascade concrete? <laughs> it's exactly. Well, we do have cascade concrete. If, if you look at the average density of new fallen snow, you know, we're in the high range. We're around 10 to 12 percent. It just is an average. Uh, you get into the interior and you get more down around six to seven percent. Uh, I think like if you go over the cascade, just emission rich. You're mm -hmm. down to maybe you know seven to eight percent. I mean, there's a real difference when you start getting into continental climate. And basically, the snow falls with more air in it, so you get the lighter powder. Mm -hmm. uh, you go over. I was at I was over at Snowbird uh, a couple of times when it was three percent snow. I mean, it was just wow. Well, <laughs> you know, you could have a big pile on the on a rail and just and step with you. Awesome skiing, mind you. Yeah, it's unknown um, around here. I would imagine. Right? It is. A, there are. Yeah. I had a daylight crystal like that. Couple decades ago, where oh, yeah? I <laughs> think they dropped the snow unexpectedly here, and it was on its way to Utah. <laughs> yeah, just it was that was a memorable day, all in all. But actually, the 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 densest snow measured on a regular basis uh, that I that I've ever heard of is over in the Olympics. So the mm -hmm. research station I was talking about on Mount Olympus, there um, in the middle of the Olympics, the they spent a whole winter up there during the International Geophysical Year and they measured snowfall constantly. And the average snow was around 26%. Oh, wow. your concrete. Wow. And that's, that's what, and that has the heavy rhyming, which is one of the reasons that we can have glaciers over there because the snow sticks to everything and doesn't okay. go anywhere. And, and there's a lot of it, so it doesn't melt off yeah. in the summer. But overall, ours is heavier, but it's still pretty good. But it, you know, I think it makes us better skiers. Uh, mm -hmm. I know I, I used to, to work uh, for a while for uh, one of the Healy ski operations up in Canada. And I know the guides up there love to have people from Seattle come up and go skiing because they said they were happy with anything. <laughs> Easy to please. <laughs> so it could be raining and they were happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, we're the, we're the New York, New York of, uh, of mountains up here, right? You can make it here. <laughs> totally you can that. anywhere. <laughs> That's right. Hey, when, when you've um, your avalanche research and your experience, I assume has brought you into resorts at times other than when you were skiing, have you ever had the experience of being involved in, in uh, setting off the explosives that the resort set off to, uh, to control uh, the air, the avalanches in the area. Yeah, I mean, I, I went on a lot of to observe. <laughs> Mark and I went out patrols not too infrequently. Actually, Mark used to be a patroller uh, down at uh, Mammoth Mountain in California. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So. So what's going on here to grad school? What's going on? I most most you know resort skiers don't ever see that. They certainly hear it as they're getting out of their car and putting their boots on and that sort of thing. You hear the kaboom and then you on a good, you know, powder or a new snow day, you might hear it throughout the rest of the resort. What's what's going on um behind the scenes when you, you know, what 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 are we not seeing when we're hearing uh those those explosives? Well, it's you know and that's kind of evolved over time too. Back in the uh oh late 50s you know, mid to late, I guess mid fifties down around Alta. Actually, Ed was a snow ranger over there. Lachapeau was a snow ranger over there. And Monty Atwater, they were both, you know, World War II veterans. And they were both experimenting with the idea of, I mean, the idea behind avalanche control is you shake a slope and if it's unstable enough to slide, it will slide without anybody underneath it. Now, the powder's wrecked, mind you, but then nobody gets hurt. 
And so that's the basic premise behind it. They used early on, they used a lot of artillery, uh, surplus uh, artillery from both World War II and from the Korean War. And that got more and more expensive. And uh, uh, thinking about it, the army became less and less happy about turning artillery over to people who worked in ski areas. <laughs> yeah, I know Even guys who work in ski areas. <laughs> yeah, seriously, these guys have got artillery? No. Yeah. It's a, it's, they always have safety I, meetings beforehand. So. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> they do. Yes, those, those can be deadly, though, in themselves. Set <laughs> a couple of aside for 4th of July, man. <laughs> exactly. Um, actually, as far as I know, the only accident they had, which there were no casualties except a garage door, in Utah, and they were doing avalanche control. I can't remember which of the canyons it was, but they shot a little high and went over the ridge. Oh, jeez. And, 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 and blew up somebody's garage door. That was a long, long time ago. Yeah, my gosh. <laughs> Just want to be clear about that. Um, so, but now most of the control is done by hand, which basically means the patrollers get up almost in the middle of the night, uh, shortly after they go to bed. And... Uh, <laughs> And then they get up and there's, a, there's usually an avalanche forecaster for the area and they get up earlier than everybody else. They take the ops, they determine if they need to do control. And then the rest of the patrollers head out and they spend their time. They have to fuse the bombs, which about a pound and a half of TNT with an igniter that you pull. And so they put those together, get those ready and then put them in their packs. And then I head up the lift, usually in the middle of winter before there's light. And then you hike out along the ridge tops, basically above the avalanche pass. And, you know, and they, they know the spots they need to hit and where it's right. And uh, they go through and the booms are, they're throwing those and they're sliding and they're not, and they're taking and, uh, observations of how things are behaving. I guess, I mean, shaking a slope like that is a lot faster than digging a snow pit to find out if it's unstable. I guess <laughs> a little so. more spectacular too. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and that is a huge, that's, it depends on the area. There's still some areas that do use artillery. I don't think, I don't know if any of them around here, I don't think wow. the areas here still use artillery. Well, God no. bless them for shoving those things in their pack and going up the mountain early. I'm I'm just fine with my turkey sandwich in my backpack. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and, and the one thing I say, it sounds it sounds great. Oh, you're getting first tracks, okay? We Which you might, okay? Uh, but most of the time as a patroller, and when we work for the Avalanche Center, you're actually working. And I remember we'd spend a day, you know, teaching a course or just doing snow pits. And we'd spend the whole day in the snow pit, listening to the happy people out enjoying screaming as right. they're hitting all this powder. Right. And we're there, you know, <laughs> cutting things and testing things. And so not quite as, I have to say one of the things that I found that I, I didn't enjoy, um, going out on my day off to go skiing as much <laughs> after doing that <laughs> for a, a lot shame. of years, oh, you know, I just, I just want to rest, you know, seriously. Yeah. But, oh my God. Yeah, not quite as romantic as it seems. <laughs> well, right I, back, I heard today, uh, or I saw on Instagram today, the crystal mountain had this huge pit dug and, and they were talking about um, there being a weak layer that, that arrives sometime in January that they're concerned with because of the snowfall that's come on top of that. Um, I've heard, I don't know if it's true, I haven't like researched it too deeply, but that this the ski shops are selling lots of backcountry AT gear because, you know, there's some people and, and we had one on earlier who, you know, if they can't get a reservation, they they head out into the side country if, you know, Crystal Mountain or whatever other resort is, is filled up for the day. Um, 
can you just explain a little bit about what a weak layer is and what that means for you know the rest of the the avalanche scenario that could come from it? Well, sure. The, first of all, there's there's two different two main types of, of avalanches. There's loose snow avalanches and there's slab avalanches. Loose snow avalanches. There's probably some out there today because we've got some you know our snow levels are going up today to or freezing levels are going up to about five to six thousand feet today. It's kind of the warmest it's been in, in almost a month and. Uh, you've got the new snow there, and you've probably seen these on steeper slopes. You start to heat that upper layer. It's just like sand. A little piece starts to move, except the snow is a little bit more cohesive than sand. And you start to get these little runners that are coming down in the snow. Right. Or you get the big, you see the rollers, which can actually get pretty big around here sometime. Um, those are those are loose slides that happen. Now, those mostly are not dangerous in and of themselves. But again, if you get one that's large enough and there's a terrain trap, you can get buried. Or... If you get caught up on one of those, it decides to go off cliff mm-hmm. or ram you into a tree, the outcome is not good. No. So they're, they're to be respected, but they're not quite as dangerous as the slab avalanche. So the slab avalanche, basically during snowfalls, there's variations in the wind and the temperature. So the snowpack is not entirely uniform. It tends to form these layers. And sometimes within there, what we're, we're classic for here is we'll get, uh, we'll have an ongoing snowstorm with wind and then there may be a pause or something. You'll get a, a batch of like stellar crystals that will kind of lay down and the wind will pick back up again. And so you don't, you have this wheat, this layer is kind of like you have two slabs of ice cream that are kind of melted in between them, you know, and they can slide off of each other. Or maybe better a slab of ice cream sitting on a, a piece of plywood. Oh, <laughs> and then yeah. it, can, it will slide. So you, that's what they mean by weak layer is this surface, basically a surface. And you've got a cohesive slab on top of that. Okay. So it comes off. So the key with this is, is when a slab avalanche releases, it isn't just a little point that builds up. A huge area with a huge amount of snow can release. We had in the last, well, in the last few days, there have been natural avalanches that have been breaking out with their eight to 10 feet deep up in the Cascades. Wow. And that's the reason they were doing helicopter bombing up along Stevens Pass and had closure today is because that buried weak layer back in January, if you can get something going big enough in the upper portion of the snowpack, it adds enough weight to the snowpack to break it out down to those that buried layer, and you can get these huge fractures. And that's wow. kind of what we're seeing in the Cascades right now. There's not a lot of them, but the ones that happen are really big. And those the ones they were really hitting are the ones that affect the highway up there because they did have one, I guess, that came down over the weekend that actually took out some timber and uh, and deposited some some timber, some log debris on the highway there east of the pass. Wow, so, on Snoqualmie yeah. is that the that must on be Stevens. the one that oh, on Stevens. Stevens, okay, yeah, wow, they could have had some at Snoqualmie too. I mean, that's the so yeah, so that's those are the two different types, and that the slab is by far the more dangerous one, the one that causes huge amounts of physical damage, etc. But either one of them get you. Wow, interesting. Recently, um, I saw this the video of uh, Le Grave in France, which is a little scary in, in the in the French Alps, where they had an avalanche that was so big, this air blast knocked down all the trees and, you know, toppled some buildings and stuff. Um, would that be like, I assume on the larger side of a slab avalanche, I, I almost think there yeah. was some glacier um, <laughs> cal- calving or whatever the term for that is involved as okay. well. We probably don't have a lot of that in the Northwest where you know, our glaciers sadly are kind of limited near ski areas, but uh, yeah, I have, have there been some kind of historic um, avalanches in, in the Northwest that, uh, Oh yeah. Well, that, that you've seen you know, a lot of time or funny you should ask that today's today is the, or maybe it's 
it may be it's planned. Today is the anniversary of the deadliest avalanche accident in the north in, in the United States, which was yeah. here in the Pacific Northwest okay. in 1910 on March 1st. And, oh, and that the one that involved the train. The one that involved, yeah, the train. Yeah, I read a and book about that a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah, just just to the the west of Stevens Pass, um, there was a, a little town there they called Wellington, which was the train stop. And it was on the west side of what was the Cascade Tunnel at that point, which is only it was a little less than three miles long. And they, um, it was a mail train and a passenger train and it was a routine trip. And they got there just as a nine day blizzard hit uh, with just reading the, the reports on it, it just boggled my mind. I mean, I've mm-hmm. seen some pretty big snowstorms, but they, they, there was a foot an hour snow frequently during this nine day stretch. There was one day where they got 11 feet of snow in one day, Jeez. 132 inches. Oh my gosh. Wow. Seriously. And this, wow. and this was with wind, et cetera. Uh, I mean, they were having problems if they were starting to run out of cold to keep the passenger trains uh, heated. Uh, you know, there was some, they weren't too worried about avalanches because they'd never had one there before. But the, I think it was the summer before there'd been a big forest fire, which had denuded the slope. Oh, yeah. And so it was really wide open. There was some thought discussion of moving the train back into the tunnel, but the problem was they're burning coal. So that's going to asphyxiate everybody. And in fact, some of the people just got desperate enough. 20 some people decided to hike out and they did make it down the scenic. But, you know, there were infirm people and children and stuff on the train as well. So they they couldn't make the trip and they were mostly not dressed to be doing that, especially in that kind of snow. Yeah. And uh, so after that, that blizzard, then suddenly it turned to heavy rain, atmospheric river. And at least that's what we speculate. And that came in and what, what rain does on a snowpack like that is it adds a lot of loading, a lot of weight, while at the same time weakening this cohesion of the snowpack. Wow. So that's, we had, we actually, we had a mini version of that just about a week ago when we were having the cold snow and then we had that warm up with rain sure, right? Yeah. about a week or so ago, yep. the little atmospheric river that on a small scale, that's exactly what happened mm. back, or on a larger scale back 121 years ago. Wow. And, and if you recall a week ago, it closed all three passes for a while. I it mean, did. Yeah. closed for like a day and a half, two days. So imagine that on a, you know, by a factor of 10 sort of things, what those trains encountered up there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So wow. Yes, well, we, we can get really we large ones. Yeah. We're going here. Um, wow. I was going to say, you, you were talking about the, the, the blast, the powder blast. The air blast with a really fast moving slab avalanche yeah. is can cause major damage itself. Mm-hmm. I think I read in the, one of the reports about some of the timber that came down. I thought it was from the air blast. And I was, uh, I used to teach uh, avalanche courses for um, Alaska State Parks. And there was a place up there near Bird Creek. I forget what the name of the, the uh, slide path was, not critical, but they had a huge, <laughs> kind of a funny story after the fact because nobody was hurt. But uh, a couple went up and went uh, touring and they left their Ford Econoline van parked down there and a huge avalanche came down and the actual debris pile stopped. I think it was like several hundred yards away from it, but the air blast from it took the Econoline van. I still have pictures of it, took that, rammed into this huge tree and flattened it to it was about six inches <laughs> oh or maybe gosh. eight inches thick in the middle. I mean, that <laughs> was just the force of that blast. There's some I mean, power. I, I always wow. use that picture in my avalanche courses. Of, yeah. No, it's not that light, fluffy stuff that you're used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's no, not the three no percent stuff from Alta or whatever. Yeah. No, wow. no, it's the three hundred percent stuff. So, <laughs> oh, gosh, wow. wow, that's something else. 
Where would our listeners see you if you were out making some time to go skiing? Where do you like to go? Any anywhere I can get to, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I love all the areas here. I have, uh, I think I have a particular. Well, I have particular fondness for for Stevens and for for Crystal. Um, Stevens because we spent a lot of our research time up there. There was a, a while we were working on the Central Avalanche Hazard Forecasting. There was a secondary project we were involved in, which is called Alternate Methods of Avalanche Control which was basically anything you could think of, which would might bring down an avalanche, but doesn't require expensive explosives, try it out, <laughs> which we did for two years. And we did a lot of our experimenting up at Stevens. Uh, like shake uh, trees or <laughs> Well, amongst other things we did. Are you guys familiar with Bobby and Nancy shoots up at Stevens going up to seventh heaven? It's on the yes. right side of the seventh heaven yep. lift. Mm -hmm. And so we, I remember we put, one of the things we tried was, is airbags and, and freight trains. Um, Seems to be a train theme here, though. Suddenly, <laughs> I <it>? guess so. <laughs> on freight trains, they put these bet between the cargo and they inflate them to hold them in place. And we're thinking, we'll put them on the ground and run lines to them, and then let the snow fall. And then when it's time, we'll just pump them up and and dump the snow and push it up. <laughs> Makes sense to me. <laughs> well, it works kind of early season, but once you have a twenty foot snowpack, the upper part of the snowpack doesn't really care what's going on down there anymore. And oh, so okay. they kind of though they yeah. did use them and they used them in Colorado for a while and. I accidentally forgot to turn the compressor off one day and one of them blew up and that did work, <laughs> but it was, so. it was, yeah. it was not cost effective. Anyway, so I spent, <laughs> no, we spent a lot use. of time working up there on that stuff and got to know uh, a lot of the people long-term at Stevens. And then Paul Bogger, who was the, the head of the patrol at Crystal and uh, the head of avalanche control there for forever, was one of my best friends. So I had a lot of really good memories up there, but I had a great time at Alpatol and Mission Ridge, White Pass, they're mm -hmm. all Area. yeah yeah we're lucky to have such yeah, such great places to go ski <laughs> kind of makes me want to set up one of those like at, at some summer camps they got the big blob like the big burrito out in the lake you know and and it's filled up and one kid jumps on one side and it launches the kid who's sitting, yeah. on, <laughs> sitting on the other <laughs> get something like that going on the mountaintop with yeah that could you know, work 25 that feet of work. snow on on the end of this thing let's set, send the fat guy out to jump on <laughs> <laughs> We'll put a not rope going, on him. Lance. I'm not going. <laughs> we'll put a rope on him. <laughs> wow. Well, gosh, we um, really appreciate your time here today, Rich. Um, oh, sure. This is this has just been real educational and and real fun too. It's it's uh, it's it's just an honor to add you to our on the lift podcast. And um, uh, you know, thanks for taking your time out of out of your day to, to oh, help thanks. us out here. Thank you. I, I think. I mean, probably. The avalanche forecasts and weather forecasts, everything really good. I think one of the primary things which which makes it safe to go out in the backcountry is, is education. Yes, so that is that is the key. We have an educated, increasingly educated population. Um, I mean, you were talking about people because the areas are limited in numbers of people that we we are having record-breaking numbers going out in the backcountry this year, and there's a lot of people are just casually going out to snow to snowshoe, etc. And it honestly makes everybody really, really tense to have people that aren't really, you know, they're out in the flats potentially, but, you know, we're getting these things running a long distance right now. But education, anything we do to educate people and make them more aware of what the, the joys are obvious once you get out there, the risk uh -huh. is a little bit more hidden. So I think that's the key. And, and I would, people that are, go out and they like it, uh, you know, there's a lot of introductory avalanche courses and yeah. the knowledge can go a long way in knowing that you don't know what you don't know and you might turn around and yep. come back and enjoy it on a day where it's a little bit better. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, we certainly appreciate all the work you uh, you've pioneered to, to have the data that, that builds, you know, this, uh, the information we have to keep us safe out there. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great. I never, I it's never great. thought I'd be the old guy. Though, I <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Never did my hard. friends actually, cause they didn't think I'd last this long. <laughs> yeah. When you were talking about being younger and dumber, I, there's two other guys on this podcast who are probably lucky to be alive too. <laughs> yeah. We all are. I think. <laughs> well, thanks again, Rich. Um, we appreciate it. And we're going to, put our tips up and lower or raise that bar not lower that raise bar, the bar raise the bar on that chairlift and and uh and uh move into skiing instead of talking but thanks so much all right you guys take care be safe thanks okay. again all right lance is back a couple quick announcements here look for us in clubhouse we haven't specified the exact time. We promised it a little earlier in the week, and, and that part of the week hasn't happened yet, apparently. But if you've got that new app, Clubhouse, we want to have a little conversation about skiing and snowboarding and basically some ideas for um, that you might have for some fun things to do on the show. I will uh, post something hopefully a day or two ahead of time and see what kind of ideas we come up with. We just learned from one of our callers who actually wasn't a caller but a texter that you can use that same phone number to text us whatever it is you have on your mind about our podcast, about skiing, about snowboarding, about show ideas, about whatever. So you can also leave a voicemail, but whatever you choose to do, the number is 253-260-4577. And our favorite place lately is Instagram. Find us at On The Lift Podcast on Instagram and on the liftpodcast.com for our website with a few show notes and uh, some great things to uh, complement what we've got going on during these shows. Thanks, guys. Visit us at on the where you can listen to back episodes of the podcast. You'll also find show notes, feedback box, and our call in number 253-260-4577.